0: real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: Before we get started, I have a couple of quick reminders. If you like hearing the sound of my voice, then maybe you'll also enjoy the fruits of my typing. If so, then you can find me at the Queens of England podcast on Facebook and at Queens podcast on Twitter. There's also my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com. And my all-important Patreon page, where, should you be of noble heart and generous soul, you can throw some change my way. You can find it at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. Any contribution you could send my way would be fantastic. Second, I'd like to thank all the people who have left really kind reviews on iTunes. They're keeping the profile of the show high and making me sound rather wonderful. I am cursed with narcissism, so I love hearing them for my own sake. But don't forget that more good reviews equals more listeners, so keep them coming. Finally, I would like to thank you all for listening in. To all new listeners, welcome. To my long-suffering listeners, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 37, Catherine of Aragon, his brother's wife. The story of the six wives of Henry VIII contains so many firsts for the history of England, so many momentous events that still shape her and the rest of the world, that sometimes it can really do your head in. Why dwell on the first woman to be married to to two heirs to the throne when you can talk about the first English king to have his marriage annulled for six centuries? Why bother with that when you can have the first ever queen to be executed? And then another annulment, and another featuring another execution. We have foreign queens, domestic queens, young queens, old queens, strong-willed queens, meek queens, all married to one man. The fascination with this story has spawned countless plays, TV dramas, films, books, everything. This means that almost anyone with even a passing interest in British history has heard the name Catherine of Aragon or Anne Boleyn. They probably know the old rhyme, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. They probably know the first two wives, Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn. They probably remember them portrayed as characters in books, written by Philippa Gregory or Hilary Mantel. They might remember actresses like Natalie Dormer, Joanne Wally, Samantha Cerner and Natalie Portman in their roles playing them. Even if they don't, there is a degree of cultural osmosis that probably means that they have a view of these characters. Yet so much of this is so fundamentally shaped by popular culture so moulded by the individual views of certain authors and scriptwriters that it can put you into camps without realising it. Just like with the Wars of the Roses, where you can find yourself with people who back the Lancastrians or Yorkists to this day, you find people today who are hardcore Catherine of Aragonistas, my term, who despise the Ambulinophiles. And that's before we get into the debate on their husband who caused all of this. Now, I don't pretend to be much different, though frankly I rather admire both of these extraordinary women. But my job in this podcast is to present to you the history, what I deem to be the quote unquote facts. Now, I'm not entirely sure where this will lead me, or whether it's going to send me down a road where I spend the next few months buried in angry emails. But I think that one thing that isn't often studied, at least not enough, is how these women were as queens. Not as wives, or as mothers, but as the successors of an office that goes back centuries, and for us, over 30 episodes. So that is how I intend to approach this. Of course, this does not mean that I won't be getting into all the juicy intrigue, death and mayhem. It's unavoidable, and so much fun. My current plan for covering the story of Catherine is to spend the rest of this episode talking about her background and childhood in Spain, up to her second marriage to Henry in 1509. The next episode will deal with her time as queen after the shenanigans with Anne Boleyn. Then there will be a break for Christmas where there will be a special episode before concluding Catherine's story with the so-called Great Matter and her eventual death. This is probably the most famous queen that I've covered so far, so I won't pretend I'm not nervous, but I'll go ahead and do it anyway. Okay, so enough build-up, let's talk about Catherine of Aragon. Well, actually no, let's start with the history of Spain. Spain had been one of the major provinces of the Roman Empire, but in the 5th century, it was overrun by first the Vandals and then the Visigoths. They were assimilated into the Empire of sorts, and so when the Western Empire fell, they remained Christian and ran the peninsula as two kingdoms, roughly conforming to modern Spain and Portugal, kind of. Then came the Islamic invasions of the 8th century, which pretty much drove the Christians out, but for a couple of last-ditch stands, which then led to about 700 years of intermittent warfare between various Christian and Islamic kingdoms, slash emirates, slash caliphates, though it's fair to say that they fought amongst themselves just as much. By the 15th century, there were three major Christian kingdoms in the Iberian Peninsula. Portugal in the west, Aragon in the east, and the joint monarchy of Castile and Leon, which I will call just Castile for convenience, in the north and centre. The last Muslim-controlled region was the Emirate of Granada in the very south. In Castile, a struggle for the crown saw that rarest of creatures. A ruling queen emerge in the figure of Isabella I. In 1474, she then married the king of Aragon, Ferdinand, creating a vast supermonarchy that was now ready to coordinate an attack on Granada. In 1492, the last Muslim stronghold was taken and the peninsula was Christianized after the expulsion of the Jews. Portugal remained independent, but the rest of it was controlled by Ferdinand and Isabella, who celebrated by sending off some Genoese sailor called Christopher that no one has heard of out west to discover a shortcut to the Spice Islands. Through all of this, most of Europe expected Isabella to defer to her husband, and legally speaking, in a way she was required to, in practice this was far from the case. One visitor to the Spanish court said the following about Isabella. "'The Queen is 48 years old, and so is older than the King, "'but she appears to be more than 36. "'She is tall, somewhat chubby, and of agreeable countenance. "'Such is her knowledge of the arts of peace, "'such is her wisdom in the arts of war, "'that it appears unbelievable that a woman should understand so many matters. "'She is devout, and spends great amounts of money on ornaments for churches.' She respects religious people and establishes houses for them. During the War of Granada, she was constantly at the side of her husband, although he listened to her advice and warnings. She and the king sit together to administer justice. They listen to lawsuits and resolve them, either through consolation or by issuing judgments against which no appeal can be made. It is said that the Almighty, seeing that Spain was languishing, sent this exceptional woman so that, in union with her husband, she could save her country from ruin. Finally, she is so devout, so pious, of such a sweet disposition, that one would struggle in vain to sing the praises that her virtues deserve. I absolutely love this description, because it really gets to the heart of the conflict in the mind of the medieval man when he came across powerful, strong women. He is at pains to point out that she ruled in deference to her husband, but then goes on about how knowledgeable she was, how clever, how she saved Spain, how she was sent by God. Make no mistake about it, she was the ruler of most of Spain in this period. One thing that this account does not touch on is Isabella's children, though, and what an example for a mother they had. Ferdinand and Isabella had five kids who made it to adulthood. Their son did not outlive both his parents, but their three daughters did, the youngest of whom, Catherine, was born in 1485, the same year, of course, that Henry Tudor won the throne of England on the field of Bosworth. Catherine would have received one of the best educations that any Queen of England would have, as Isabella believed she had been robbed of decent learning as a child, and was determined to do better by her daughters. Catherine and her sisters were taught by a variety of tutors, including a female professor from the University of Salamanca. They were given a good education in what we might call book learning, but of course they were also being taught how to become queens, which was what was intended for them, and indeed was their destiny. The eldest daughter Isabel and her sister Maria both became queens of Portugal. Maria indeed married her sister's widower to gain that title. Joanna would eventually succeed her mother as Queen of Castile, and whose marriage to a Habsburg would in many ways define European history for two hundred years. And Catherine, well, of course, she was to become Queen of England, but I'm getting ahead of myself. During their education, they would have been taught both their place, but also their power. They knew their duty, but they did not expect to be just passive bystanders. After they all, they had Isabella as a mother. Now, of course, the main aim of Ferdinand and Isabella in this period was to unite all of Spain under their rule, which to a great extent they had done, but their situation needed to be cemented. This meant that they needed to secure the flanks of their empire, which also included parts of Italy, with marriage alliances. They secured their western flank with those Portuguese marriages I talked about before. Italy was secured after a successful war with France, but the French still posed a significant threat to Ferdinand and Isabella. They needed an ally to help contain it, and they found a willing one in the new dynasty across the English Channel. The last time that Castile had married into the English royal family was when princesses were married to John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, and Edmund, future Duke of York, of course the sons of Philip of Hainaut. This meant that Catherine was related to both sides of the Wars of the Roses conflict. Now, a match was proposed between her and the presumed next King of England, Arthur, Prince of Wales, and emissaries were sent from Spain in the spring of 1488. Henry Seventh, in particular was very keen on the match, as it was a tremendous vote of confidence in his new dynasty, and could not believe his luck that this was happening. As a reminder of just how unromantic all of this was, at first all the negotiations were about diplomacy and trade. The chaos in England and Castile over the past few decades meant that all their agreements were out of date, and of course all of this was about containing France, so that needed to be thrashed out. Next, the ambassadors went to see Arthur himself, Got to see the goods, of course. He was apparently asleep and stark naked when they came for their inspection. According to the letter written back to Spain, they deemed his qualities to be, quote, quite incredible and did not elaborate. Next, they worked out the dowry and rents and so forth, and then they went home accompanied by two English ambassadors. Ferdinand and Isabella wanted to make sure that England knew what they had with the daughter of Spain and so they wore their best power clothes, festooned with jewels, including a ruby the size of a tennis ball, sitting on furniture made of pure gold, and surrounded by a few hundred of their closest minions. When the three-year-old Catherine emerged, she was no different. According to one account, Catherine and her sister Maria, quote, were very richly dressed. Both had 14 ladies-in-waiting in attendance upon them. All of these were ladies of noble lineage, and they were dressed in cloth of gold. It was a beautiful thing to see the richness of their dresses. The next day there was a tournament, which the royal family, watched from a scaffolding. The ambassadors sat beside them, and it was beautiful to see how the Queen held up her youngest daughter Catherine, Princess of Wales, who was three years of age. The deal was signed in the Treaty of Medina del Campo in March 1489, And it was, as I said, a hugely comprehensive agreement, covering basically every area, from trade to defence, and of course, sealed by the marriage of the Princess of Castile, Leon and Aragon, to the heir to the English throne. The English negotiators, it has to be said, did a sterling job, as the dowry was large and the commercial provisions very favourable to English merchants it was agreed that Catherine would be married to Arthur a month after arriving in England, but it was decided over English objections they would wait to send Catherine until Arthur reached its majority in 1500. Now, this is where it gets complicated, as their marriage had many stages. They were formally betrothed in 1497, where the Spanish ambassador de Puebla, who I talked about in episode 35, stood in for Catherine in a ceremony at Woodstock in Oxfordshire. This formed a legal promise to marry. In 1499, they were married by proxy, with de Puebla again standing in for the princess. But then further arguments over money and land required a second marriage by proxy, this time in 1500 at Ludlow, again with de Puebla doing his best Catherine impression, before, finally, plans were made for the Princess of Wales to come to England to meet her man in 1501. She left her home in Granada for A Coruña in the far northwest, a journey that would take three months taking time out to visit shrines like at Santiago de Compostela and the Virgin of Guadalupe. This meant that she would be going through the Bay of Biscay and across the Channel in the autumn, which anyone who knows anything about sailing knows is a terrible idea. Sure enough, it was an awful journey, where they narrowly avoided shipwreck, but eventually on the 1st of October they arrived in Plymouth and proceeded to travel to London on foot. The people of England immediately took to the Princess of Wales, According to one account, she, quote, "...could not have been received with greater rejoicings if she had been the saviour of the world." She was accompanied in her journey to London by 60 people, three times what Henry VII had stipulated, but Isabella was not one to skimp on making her daughter look great. When she arrived in London, she was given another great reception. The whole city essentially had a great big party. On the 14th of November, 1501, at St Paul's Cathedral, Catherine officially married Arthur. She was dressed in white, not necessarily the custom then, and was led to the cathedral by Arthur's 10-year-old brother Henry, then the Duke of York. The ceremony was presided over by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and was attended by anyone who was anyone. Everyone was putting their best foot forward here. No one wanted to lose face in this great diplomatic event. After the ceremony ended, there was a great feast, followed by the ceremonial bedding. Now, I haven't talked much about this for our previous marriages, but this really was one of the most bizarre things that happened in medieval marriage. As we all know, a marriage was not considered legitimate if it was not consummated, and so, to put it delicately, the wedding party would make sure that the newlyweds did it. It was legally required sex, the hottest kind. First, the Earl of Oxford had to test the bed, no joke, to make sure that it wasn't going to collapse or cause them harm or something. Next, Catherine lay on the bed before, and this is where things get weird, the king, his son, and a whole lot of bawdy, drunk guests came in, along with a load of bishops. These bishops then blessed the bed, and then more wine was handed out so everyone could get a little bit more drunk, before, finally, everyone left except Arthur and Catherine, who, by the way, FYI, were naked this whole time. What happened next has been a matter of contention to this day, but, according to Catherine... For whatever reason, they did not consummate the marriage that night. Was it possible? Well, Arthur had been bragging all night, to put it bluntly, about how randy he was feeling, and made it known he was anxious to make love to his new wife. On the other hand, though, he was a sickly and weak 15-year-old boy, and so it is possible he was not physically able to do the deed. The morning after, though, he rather crassly boasted about how he had, quote, "...been in Spain." One interesting piece of evidence suggests that Arthur was full of you-know-what is the matter of bedsheets. In Castile, it was the custom to display the bedsheets after their first night as a couple to prove that they had done the deed. Ferdinand and Isabella had done it. Their children, Isabella, John, Joanna and Maria had done it when they got married. Catherine did not. Now, I can already hear you say, but James, maybe this was because it wasn't the done thing in England. And yes, this was not commonly done in England, but still, it does add a certain amount of credence to the argument that Catherine remained a virgin throughout her first marriage. The parties and feasts and jousts went on for another week, before finally it was time for the Spaniards to return home. Understandably, Catherine was upset by this. These companions were her last connections to her homeland. After they left, she would be almost alone in a country where she didn't speak the language, married to a teenager she had only just met. Henry, being the classy guy he sometimes could be, took time to invite the Princess of Wales and her ladies to Richmond, where he showed them a great new library he had just built, and offered them some rings as gifts. Firstly, they were offered to Catherine, and then once she had taken her favourite, her ladies got their pick. And afterwards, they were distributed amongst the ladies at court. After all this was done, Arthur returned to Ludlow in the Welsh marches, but it was up in the air as to whether Catherine would accompany him, or if she would stay with the royal court. Here follows what is possibly the most British conversation of all time between her and Henry the Seventh. "...the king spoke with the princess and told her that it was necessary that the prince should go to Wales, and that there were diverse opinions amongst his counsellors. but he himself would not decide one way or the other except in accordance with her wishes, declaring that he would not decide anything other than what she wanted." Her reply was that neither in this matter nor in any other did she have any other wishes other than what his highness had and that she would be content with whatever he decided. He replied, asking her not to leave the decision to him because it might be that his decision would cause her anger. She repeated her first answer. This indecision continued for four days. This may sound rather adorable, but Henry was playing a rather clever game here. He wanted grandchildren as quickly as possible, so as to secure the dynasty even further, and so wanted Catherine to go with Arthur. But he had promised her parents that the couple would be apart for the next two to three years, so he needed Catherine to come up with this decision by herself, or put him in a situation where he'd get away with making this decision, which he eventually did. Throughout this, there were continued attempts, both by Henry and by Isabella and Ferdinand, to stiff each other financially, as arguments continued over how various jewels will be distributed, what rents would be paid, etc., which I won't bore you with. But eventually, just before Christmas 1501, Catherine and Arthur departed for Ludlow, where they essentially were supposed to govern Wales. Well, Arthur was meant to do it, but it was considered good training for both of them before they became king and queen. But of course, that was not meant to be. After just three months of marriage, Arthur died, I described how his parents and the court reacted to this terrible news in episode 35, but I did not talk about how Catherine reacted. As one might expect, this was a highly traumatic time for her, and apparently her health collapsed, coming close to following her husband to the grave. She was returned to London very slowly, and there she was isolated in her chambers while everyone waited to see if she was pregnant. When it turned out that she wasn't, then Henry could move to make his only surviving son, Henry, Duke of York, the new Prince of Wales. So, this is a pretty awful situation for Catherine. Her chance of becoming Queen of England looked to be gone, and now she was essentially a hostage, because the possibility of Arthur dying had been built into the marriage contract. Henry had to repay her dowry, and had to keep a fairly substantial amount of land and its assorted rents through her position as the Dowager Princess of Wales and Henry did not like spending money like that. Her parents, though, already had a plan for this. Pretty much as soon as they heard the news about the death of their son-in-law, they dispatched another ambassador, this time the Duke of Estrada, to travel to England. His mission was to bring their daughter home and make sure she got all the financial commitments from Henry that were her right as a widow. However, he had another secret instruction. It was all a ruse. What he really needed was to renew the English alliance with a marriage to the new heir to the throne. This was not revealed even to de Puebla, who remained convinced of the need to return Catherine to her parents. The reason why they were so keen for this renewed alliance comes from the political situation in Europe. The French were on the march, threatening Aragonese territories in southern Italy. The last thing Ferdinand and Isabella needed was for England to make friends with France or even, God forbid, marry the new Prince of Wales into the French royal family. These fears are made clear in a letter written by Isabella to Estrada. You will know that the King of France is on the road to Milan with an army. You will understand how...
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care.
1: How important it is not to delay the agreement for the marriage of the Princess of Wales, our daughter, with the Prince of Wales, especially because it is said that the King of France is working to obstruct this and is seeking the marriage of the Prince of Wales with his own daughter. But of course, there was a very important thing that needed to be addressed. Was Catherine still a virgin? It would be beneath the dignity of England for her heir to the throne to be given someone else's, much less his brother's sloppy seconds for a wife. If everyone could agree that Catherine's marriage to Arthur had not been consummated, then it would make everything a whole lot easier. If you'll forgive me a little trip into theology, the Catholic Church held, and still holds, that there are seven sacraments, or acts in which God imparts his divine grace, and therefore indispensable parts of what it essentially means to be a Roman Catholic. These are baptism, confirmation, Holy Communion, penance, anointing of the sick, ordination, and most important for us, marriage. While a priest could marry a person, matrimony was the only sacrament that was performed independently of the church. It was in the act of sex that a couple performed the sacrament of marriage. Once entered into, this bond was inviolable. To quote Matthew 19, 6 the two shall be in one flesh, therefore now they are not two but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together let no man put asunder. Theoretically, not even the Pope can inject on this, as a sacrament was held to be a divine, not temporal law. In theory. Of course, humans are humans, and men are men, and so there is usually a way around everything if the price was right and you knew the right people. That said, if it could be proven that Catherine and Arthur had had sex, then no amount of gold could make this marriage legal. However, if they had not then, well, things get rather complicated, and there are rather a lot of Latin terms that I won't trouble you with, but essentially, because they had not performed the sacrament, then maybe the Pope could have dispensed with this law in their case, if the price was right. Initially, this wasn't considered, presumably because it was assumed that the marriage had been consummated. Arthur had said so himself, and they had been bedded before witnesses, and lived together as man and wife for months. Her confessor claimed that Catherine was no longer a virgin but she herself protested in no uncertain terms that she was one. Initially, however, Henry VII had an alternative second wife for Catherine in mind. Him! Elizabeth of York had just died, and after a few months of mourning, he was ready to get back out there and meet a nice woman. Especially since now he had only one son left. There were plenty of offers. He was, after all, an eligible bachelor. But nothing came of any of them. When Henry floated the idea of marrying Catherine, the reaction of her mother was, well, I'll tell you. Quote, this will be something that is very grave and never seen. That merely to have spoken of it is offensive to the ears, and we will not agree to it for anything in the world. She then instructed Estrada to give Henry an ultimatum marry Catherine to his son, or return her to Spain. The terms of the marriage will be for the same dowry as for the first marriage, with the second instalment coming after the marriage had been consummated. There were a few other commercial inducements thrown in for good measure, and Estrada was given carte blanche to negotiate as he saw fit. On the 23rd of June, 1503, a deal was signed that Catherine would marry Prince Henry in two years once he had reached the age of 14. It was called the Treaty of Richmond. All that stood now between them was time and the Pope, but of course it would not be that simple. While Isabella had been the one dealing with the English, Ferdinand took point in the papal negotiations, since his Aragonese lands in Italy made him a far more significant regional figure. One would have thought that he would have spent all his time insisting that his daughter was still a virgin, that after all was the easiest path, but no. He instructed his ambassador in Rome to seek permission on the assumption that the marriage had been consummated. Quote, Although in the said clause, it said that the marriage of the said princess, our daughter, with Arthur, Prince of Wales, was consummated, the truth is that it was not consummated, and that the said princess, our daughter, remains intact as she was before she married. However, the lawyers in England have decided that because people in England might have scruples and doubts about the matter, that although it is true that the said princess, our daughter, remains a virgin, and although she was married to Prince Arthur, they did not consummate the marriage... And so, in order to dispel all doubts in the future about the right of succession of any children who, God be pleased, should be born of this marriage, that has now been agreed, it may be said in the dispensation that they consummated the marriage. Basically, they were covering all their bases here, making life hard for themselves now so as to avoid problems in the future. Ha <laughs> ha. He advised his ambassador to impress upon the Pope the advantages of an Anglo-Spanish alliance to his own welfare and no doubt wealth. But then the Pope died and everyone had to start again at square one with the new boy. The new boy that they had to deal with was Julius II, who is known to history as the terrifying Pope. He is also best known for his enthusiastic patronage of the arts, as well as being terrifying, but to us his abiding quality was sloppiness. He really did not give two figs about this marriage. He took his sweet old time and the papal bull allowing the marriage that eventually resulted, really had a lot to be desired. It uses language such as that the marriage between Catherine and Arthur had, quote, probably been consummated. You don't need to be a lawyer to work out that this was not exactly adequate in a legal document. Given the complexities of the situation, one would have thought it best to create something ironclad. What instead resulted was frankly loose and unclear. And boy, oh boy, you can be sure we'll be coming back to this in a future episode but no matter. The final obstacle had being hurdled. The way was clear. The marriage could take place. Book the church and bulk buy the confetti. And then Isabella died, and for the third time, we are back at square one. Why? Well, it all goes back to that history of Spain I gave you at the start. Spain was not yet united. It was ruled by this joint monarchy, Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile and León. Isabella's will gave her crown to her daughter Joanna, with Ferdinand essentially acting as regent for two years. However, she suffered from mental illness, and was, to put it bluntly, a woman, and so it was understood that real power would be held by her Habsburg husband, Philip of Burgundy. This meant that the Crown of Castile would move away from the control of Catherine's family, meaning that Henry was potentially allying his only son, the future King of England, with the daughter of the King of Aragon, and that did not really offer him much in the way of advantage. Aragon could not be really much of a counterweight to France. It offered few commercial opportunities. It was, frankly, a little second-rate. It also did not help that Henry and Ferdinand were not fond of each other. At all. Which is why it had been Isabella that had been the main contact with him and Elizabeth in the first place. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail about the hugely complex issue that the Castilian succession ended up being, but essentially Ferdinand backed his daughter as a regnant queen, with him as her guardian, while France, the Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire signed a treaty agreeing to place Philip on the Castilian throne. This alliance was potentially disastrous for Ferdinand, so he would have thought that he would have given everything to secure the English alliance. But, as was his nature, he stiffed Henry on the dowry again, which really pissed him off. Henry was entering the nasty piece of work phase of his reign and began to mistreat Catherine, forcing her to pawn her own jewels in exchange for food. She was really stuck in the middle of the biggest pool of testosterone I've ever seen, all the while mourning the loss of her beloved mother. Sadly, it would only get worse. Henry VII then had the Prince of Wales protest the circumstances of his upcoming marriage to the church on the day before his 14th birthday, the day when he and Catherine would legally be allowed to marry. Henry put it about that he was considering marrying his son to the French king's cousin and sister of the Dauphin, Margaret of Angoulême. There was also a fierce court battle between Catherine's chaperone Doña Elvira and de Puebla, who backed opposite factions in the succession dispute, which only made Catherine feel worse. At this point in her life, she really was just a pawn in a game of kings. She was moved to the home of de Puebla, essentially to keep an eye on her, as she was in danger of waifing away. This, though, had the surprising effect of turning Catherine's depression into rage. She hated de Puebla, blaming him, really, for everything that had gone wrong, and wrote a letter to her father, admonishing him for stiffing Henry on what was owed to him and keeping de Puebla as ambassador. This would not be the last time that she would blame the middle man when it really was people higher up the food chain that were to blame. She rails against de Puebla in this letter, calling him, quote, guilty of a thousand lies and untruths against the service of your highness, and says that he has been failing to ensure that she was well cared for, but that her father was also guilty of neglecting her too. She rather pitifully states that, quote, I have suffered so much pain and discomfort that I have largely lost my good health, For two months I have suffered from severe tertian fevers, and begs her father to dismiss the Puebla. Ferdinand, though, not being a frequent recipient of Father of the Year, ignored her, as he was more worried about the threats to his holdings in Italy. After much wrangling, he agreed a deal with France that saw him marry the king's niece and pay a ton of cash in return to recognition of his being king of Naples. This turned France into an ally against the Empire and Philip of Burgundy. This remarriage, simply to protect the Italian lands, turned Castile against Ferdinand, leading him to essentially abandon the kingdom to Philip and his wife Joanna, and more importantly for us, leave his daughter Catherine in the lurch. This was compounded in 1506, when Henry allied with Philip and Joanna, confirming that diplomatically, she was now useless to Henry. Her hope of gaining the English throne was now in tatters. But then, her luck finally turned. Philip, after returning to Castile to claim his crown, suddenly died. His wife Joanna finally lost what remained of her wits and suffered a mental collapse. This left the road open again for Ferdinand to come waltzing back into Castile and revive hopes of an Anglo-Spanish alliance. He still had no claim on the throne, but he could act as guardian again, this time for his grandson, Charles of Habsburg-Burgundy. This time for his grandson, Charles of Habsburg-Burgundy, but whom you probably know as the future Emperor Charles V, though not just yet. Henry, though, pursued a different strategy, and sought to marry Catherine's sister. The, for want of a better term, mad Dowager Queen Joanna, and also his daughter Mary, to Charles. This would bind England together tightly with this potential new superpower, and given how everything would shake out, was a pretty good idea, however ludicrous the idea of Joanna remarrying in her state was. The former plan did not shake out, but the marriage of Charles to Mary was agreed in 1508. Even better, Henry let it be known that he was willing to go ahead with the marriage of his son to Catherine, so long as Ferdinand just gave him his goddamn money already. Catherine won another victory in January 1508, when her father sent a new ambassador to the English court, finally replacing the detested de Puebla. This man, de Fuensalida, met with the ageing King Henry and the new financial terms were negotiated in a very acrimonious spirit, as there was so much water under this bridge. Again, I won't bore you with the details. Henry was still keen on marrying Joanna, and wanted to tie Catherine's marriage to his own, to her sister, as well as his daughter Mary to the nephew Charles. It's best not to think too hard about how seismically ew that would have been. It's worth reiterating here that absolutely nobody was on Catherine's side here, She was helpless in this power play, this game of kings, now solely between Ferdinand and Henry. She was not a person in their minds, not a daughter or a future wife to a son, but a piece of property being bartered around. This was all deeply distressing for Catherine. According to Fuensalida in a Dispatch to Ferdinand, The princess is so despairing that neither reason nor excuses can comfort her, because on the one hand she resents what is happening, and on the other she believes that your highness has forgotten about her. She cannot credit anything else because it has been such a long time since Your Highness informed her of what was happening in her cause, nor has he written anything at all to give her hope of what might happen in the future. And for certain very powerful Lord, I myself can only marvel in view of what life has dealt her in the past and the present that she is not more ill than she has been. But still, the haggling continued unabated with the same old arguments that had raged now for nearly a decade still being trotted out. No real progress was made at all. Everyone was injectable and immovable. And then, in April 1509, Henry VII died, and everything changed yet again. So, let's quickly take stock of the situation here. Depending on your view, either the new king, Henry VIII, was a free man on his accession to the throne, single and ready to mingle, or he was already married. See, the betrothal had already happened, the vows had been made... For sure, Henry and Catherine had not said them to each other, but Henry had said them to a proxy. But of course, things were not that simple. A marriage was not officially official until it was consummated, let alone met each other by an altar of a church. If he wanted to, Henry VIII probably could have gotten out of this marriage. But of course, we know that he didn't, so let's see what happened next. What is often not spoken enough about this moment as Henry took the throne was just how precarious the situation was. The last king to transfer power successfully to his heir had been Henry V way back in the 1420s. Since then we've had coups, murders, wars, the lot. A peaceful transfer of power to a son was one of Henry VII's chief goals as a king, and now it's up to his son to cement his own succession and the dynasty. Ferdinand and his ambassador de Fuensalida would have been expecting this to be yet another setback in this great saga. Catherine herself, though, would have been optimistic about her chances... She had remarked to the ambassador the previous year that Henry treated her better than his father and would make a great husband. He responded that he, quote, hopes to God that this will be the case, but that he was not hopeful because, quote, speaking frankly, the prince is not considered a very genial person. So who was this not very genial king? He was 18 years old and had no desire to be like his father. He wanted to be like Henry V, the all powerful conquering king who had managed to seize the French throne. He was a Renaissance prince, keen to show off his own intellectual prowess and martial skills to everyone. Forget any notion you have of the fat, balding ogre. That comes later. Right now we have a bit of a hunk, and he was itching to make his mark on the world, and that meant war with France. This made Catherine of Aragon the obvious choice. She came from a family that had no trouble producing children. Indeed, her sister Maria would end up with ten kids. Henry also knew Catherine, and the evidence suggest that they had become close during all the various machinations as their parents tried to arrange the marriage. But possibly most importantly in the short term, marriage with Catherine meant alliance with Spain and Naples, and this was vital in his chief foreign policy goal, become king of France. His stated reason, though, was quite different he said that he was fulfilling the dying wish of his father, Henry Seventh, but no one believed that. Indeed, de Fuensalida was convinced that it was Henry and him alone that made the decision. There was still opposition to the match, from the Archbishop of Canterbury no less, but he did relent and allowed them to marry. Surprisingly, their wedding was a very low-key affair, held outside of the public eye at Greenwich Palace just outside of London. There were only a few guests and no doubt everyone chose their words very carefully since this marriage was of course, to say the least, theologically dubious. We don't know a whole lot about the ceremony but everyone was most definitely at pains to talk up Catherine's virginity. For a start, she wore white and wore her hair down and loose all well-known symbols of purity and virginity. After the marriage took place, they made certain to consummate the marriage and Henry was not shy about boasting his own prowess in the bedroom and how he had taken her maidenhood. He was very clear on that point. While their marriage was a rather intimate affair behind closed doors, their coronation would not be. They would be crowned together 18 days after their marriage on 24th of June 1509, Midsummer's Day. As was traditional, they stayed at the Tower of London and Henry created a number of new Knights of the Bath. On the day before the coronation, there a formal procession from the Tower to Westminster, with Catherine being carried in a horse-drawn litter decked out in jewels and gold. She was described by one chronicler as being quote, upon a cushion of white damask cloth of gold, bareheaded and wearing a round circle of gold set with pearls and precious stones. She had quote, hair hanging down to her back, of very great length, beautiful and goodly to behold. Thousands of Londoners came out to watch the procession, as did all the guilds of the city, who outdid themselves with lavish gifts. Things, sadly, did not go all their own way, as the British weather intervened while they were still in the city, and while that canopy over Catherine's head was pretty and all, it was not built to withstand a ton of rain, and so Catherine got drenched, having to run for shelter underneath the rather more sturdy awnings of a tradesman. Again, as was traditional, they stayed overnight at Whitehall Palace before the big day in Westminster Abbey. Again, this ceremony followed the classic format, which you have heard from me before, so I won't go through it all again. After the solemn procession in, Henry prostrated himself before God before taking the coronation oath and being crowned and anointed as King of England. Next, it was Catherine's turn. One imagines that as the Archbishop approached her, she might have reflected on how her fortunes had turned. Fate had dealt her first a great hand with regard to her birth and first marriage, but then intervened to give her a truly crappy eight years as a widow. Now though, she was married to a strapping young man and was crowned as Queen of England. All's well, that ends well. But of course, this was no ending. Catherine's story is only just getting started. On that note, we will end Catherine's story here for this week. Before I go, though, I wanted to answer a question that a listener named Ian sent to me by email about something in the last episode. He asked me whether it was appropriate for me to call Matilda of Scotland, Elizabeth Woodville, Anne Neville, and Elizabeth of York British, as I did in the last episode, since Britain did not become a political entity until the early modern era, that I was being anachronistic. Well, you see, I rather naively thought that I might get away with this one, but clearly I didn't, so let me briefly explain myself. When I planned the last episode, I wanted to talk about nationality, but this is a massive pain to do in the Middle Ages, because most of our queens are from some duchy or county and not the daughters of kings. To talk about nationality itself is fairly anachronistic, but I still wanted to group these queens together according to which crown they held loyalty. This is how Matilda of Flanders came to be listed as French, and Philip of Hainaut as being from the Empire, despite both being from counties in the Low Countries. Now, of course, the two Elizabeths and Anne Neville were English, so there was no problem there, but Matilda of Scotland was, well, Scottish. But Scotland was in a very strange sort of position when it came to England in the 11th and 12th centuries. Its kings tended to view themselves as being independent, but the English kings didn't. The Scottish monarchy was not even recognised by the Pope until Robert Bruce. Therefore, for the sake of convenience, I lumped Matilda in with the others, but calling her English would not really have sat right with me, So that's how I came up with calling them all British. Yes, it's a cop-out and anachronistic, but it was the best term I could come up with, and avoids all my Scottish friends coming down from over the wall and killing me to death with their claymores. Hopefully that answers the question, and now it's time for me to go. Next time, we will look at Catherine's reign as Queen of England. The longest reigning of Henry of Henry VIII's wives by a mile, she would turn out to be a pretty great queen. Apart from a couple of teeny, tiny problems.
0: Planning for your next trip?